Welcome to the Foundry Church Podcast, helping you to forge a lifelong reliance on God. To find out more about the Foundry Church or how to get involved, visit us at thefoundrychurch.com. All right, in 1809, a little French man named Napoleon was marching through Austria doing his thing, right? And for a while, it looks like all the world would fall under his command, under his, his leadership, lordship, right? The whole world was looking at Napoleon and what he was doing and what he would do next. But now, right, well, uh, only historians and, and military buffs could tell you the battles, for example, that were won by Napoleon in the year 1809. Right, but listen, right, there are some things that happened in that same year, 1809, that changed the course of history. Right, for example, you see in that year, uh, the, the following great men of literature, of, of science, and politics were born. Right, men like uh, Charles Darwin was born. Robert Charles Winthrop, Edgar Allan Poe, Alfred Tennyson, Oliver Wendell Holmes, uh, William Gladstone, and a little fellow by the name of Abraham Lincoln were all born in 1809. Right, the, the lives of these uh, statesmen, these thinkers and writers would mark uh, the, the beginning of an era, the genesis of an era. Right, but nobody right, cared about these nobodies while Napoleon, right, was, was moving through Austria. While Napoleon was, was waging battles, right? It's funny, but more people's lives have been touched by those nobodies that I listed off than by Napoleon, right? If you and I had been living in 1020 BC, the same could have been said about us, right? All of us, whether we're here in person, whether we're watching online, would have been focused on this man named King Saul, right? the, the very first king of Israel that we were learning through, if your family's following along with the story, right? with the, the chapters that we were supposed to read this week. Right? We would have learned that he's the, the first king of Israel. Right? Meanwhile, while he's king, a nobody was keeping sheep for his father on a Judean hillside near a little village of, of non-importance called Bethlehem, right? A, a little boy named David whom nobody noticed except God, right? God knew that this nobody would change the course of history, literally change the course of history, and we cannot ignore this. You see, we cannot do a look-through of scriptures without talking about the most written person in the Bible, right? Other than, than God, right? There are more chapters recorded about David's life than any other biblical figure, right? We know more about David than we do about the missionary Paul who wrote half of the New Testament, right? We know more about David than we do about the apostle Peter, right? David is examined from more directions, recorded in, in more situations and circumstances, and captured in more passages of our Bibles than anyone else. So, so the question is this, why would God devote so much of his book, right, so much of his story to this man? 
I think about it like this. How often do we go to the Bible and we see what it says and we read it and we think this, right? And that's all good. That sounds really good, but I'm alone or I'm I'm single, or I'm unemployed, or I'm old, or I'm, I, I'm tempted, or I have this stress, or, or this stress, I, or on the other side, I'm super successful, and, and I don't have to worry about this or that, and so on, right? And those things, we start to think about that when we read the Bible, and then we think the Bible doesn't speak to me directly, right? That's where we may land. But here's the thing, with David, that can never be said. He was all of those things, tempted, uh, uh, lonely, depressed, successful, wealthy, um, capable, uh, not capable. He was everything and so much more. You see, God knew we would find ourselves feeling sad, uh, angry, depressed, or unimaginably happy. And so God's record of David's life covers all of that. But today, this morning at the Foundry, I want to focus on just one little part of David's life. The, the part before he becomes king, right? Before he uh, defeats Goliath, right? Throws a stone in a giant's head, right? And cuts his head off with a sword. A great story, but we're going to skip that one, right? I want to talk about the beginning of it all, right? David's anointing. His anointing, his, his commissioning, if you will, right? This part of, of David's life reveals so much about the character of God that I could not help but talk about it today. And so let's dive in. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16. Now, if you don't have a Bible, you can use the Bibles that are in the seats in front of you, and you can take those with you when you leave here uh, today. They are for you. They're free. Or you can download the free Foundry Burke Church app at your favorite app store, and there's a Bible tab. It'll only take a few seconds. Click the Bible tab, and today's scripture is pulled up for you. All right, 1 Samuel chapter 16 is where we're going to be. And while you are turning there, let me set the background to the passage that we're going to look at uh, this morning. All right, so Eli, right, the, the high priest, uh, and his wicked sons are dead. Right? You saw that in, in the chapters, right? Samuel now is the last of the judges or the prophets, right? He's, a, he's an old man. His, his sons too have turned away from God and have led wicked and shameful lives. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 5, we learn that the Israelite people want to a king to rule over them, right? Their, their hearts desire to be like the nations around them, right? They're looking around and they're thinking the grass is greener on the other side, right? And Samuel, he warns them of the dire consequences of an earthly king, right? Like you don't want to go down that road. You don't want to deal with it. Right? He warns them flat out. In fact, right, the, the Bible tells us that their request actually breaks the heart of Samuel and God. Right? And God says to Samuel that the people's request is actually a rejection of him, a rejection of God. But as we discussed last week, right, humans, us, right, we have a tendency to ignore God's warnings, to send them aside, And so the Israelites insisted on having a king, and the people choose Saul, this man, Saul, 
to be their king. Right? Saul was like that kid from high school. Uh, you, know, you know the one I'm talking about, right? The one that's more handsome than everyone else, cooler than everyone else. He's the, the guy that everyone wanted to be, right? In my mind, he's Tom Selleck, right? He's Tom Selleck, right? He's just cool, right? He's, he's Tom Selleck. He's cool, right? And that's what Saul is like. The Bible says that he stands head and shoulders above all other men of Israel, right? Tom Selleck, tall guy, right? Right, choosing Saul as king was like choosing uh, another example, like Captain America to be the king of America, or so the people thought. And he was a great soldier, a great warrior. Right? You see, Saul initially looks like the perfect choice as king, but appearances are deceptive. And in a plot twist that would uh, put daytime soap operas to shame, right, Saul begins to openly disobey the word of God, and then he asks Samuel to not let the people, the other people in the nation, know that he has sinned before God and against God. He wants to keep it kind of on the DL. And so Samuel agrees to not humiliate Saul in public, but announces that he never wants to see Saul again. Kind of, again, daytime TV, right? Right, Saul is, is rejected then by God for his sin and on repented sin, right? And Samuel keeps his word about not seeing Saul. Enter chapter 16, where we're going to be today. So go ahead. All right, open it up. Chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. It says this Now the Lord said to Samuel, You have mourned long enough for Saul. I have rejected him as king of Israel. So fill your flask with olive oil and go to Bethlehem. Right? Find a man named Jesse who lives there, for I have selected one of his sons to be my king. But Samuel asked, how can I do that? If Saul hears about it, he'll kill me. Well, take a heifer with you, the Lord replied, and say that you have come to make a sacrifice to the Lord. And then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you which of his sons to anoint for me. All right, keep your finger there. Now, I absolutely love the way that this passage begins, right? Hey, you have mourned, (laughs) you have cried and thought about and been depressed about Saul for long enough. Now, Christina, right, she, she always tells me that I'm not good at compassion. Right? She says, I'm just not good at, at compassion. I often can be heard saying to her, are you crying? In that same tone. Right? Like, are you crying? When she wants me to say, oh dear, what's wrong? Is everything okay? How may I help you? Right? But when I look, yeah, they're there. Right? When I look at this, right? when, I, when I read this, I, I mean, it sounds like God is a lot like me here, right? I mean, God is essentially saying, okay, you done yet? Let's move on, right? Let's get it over with, right? No, I'm kidding, right? Of course, God is a compassionate God. In other words, we would have no hope, right? We would have no eternal life with him. But I think the reason he seems so harsh here in these first three verses is because he has a plan, right? He knows what the next step is, and he's ready to get going and to put this plan into motion. Uh, Look at it like this. When man panics, God provides. 
Right? When, when man panics, God provides. Right? Saul has royally, and no pun intended, messed things up. He's messed things up royally. But God has a plan, and he's ready to provide a way out, to move on, to get going. Right? You know how, how I know that God is never at a loss to know what to do and is never in a frenzy panic? It's because he's God, right? Seriously, he is a big G God, right? You see, God does not die because a man of God dies, right? He doesn't stop being God, right? He, he does not change just because a, a man of God changes. He does not lose his way just because one of his people lose their way. God is not taken by surprise by any event or turn or circumstances that come down the path, right? Saul, Saul had, had started with such promise. He, he did, right? He really seemed to be the man for the job, but it ended in disaster, right? Disaster for, for Samuel, disaster certainly for Saul, and disaster for the people of God. Listen, I, I have no doubt that Samuel had a genuine uh, love for Saul. He had a, a genuine concern and, and respect and, and hope for Saul as king. And that his mourning is genuine. It's genuine grief. Uh, how far from God Saul had wandered, and hence uh, the people of God, the nation under his leadership, have drifted as well. Right? Samuel uh, was genuinely distressed at the spiritual bankruptcy of Saul and the people. Right? They were not living their best life. Right? They, they were not living a life that was forged on God. And so Samuel, he had a genuine sorrow at the failure of a promising instrument, a promising tool, a promising resource of God, right? Genuine sorrow for the spiritual welfare of the people to have to live under such a, a king, a king that is so far away from who God is, so far away from forging their life on him. Well, listen, right? God is not at a loss about what to do here, right? His plans, like we said, are not thrown off by Saul's failure as a king, right? Because look, right? Look at this. God is on changing. He will never be caught off guard. He never panics. And that's the truth, a uh, truth of scripture. He's never thrown off guard. He never panics, right? God Provides a way forward. Provides the next step. Right? Like me, when I say, Christina, are you crying? Right? Here's what you need to do. Right? God provides a way forward. He instructs Samuel right, to go to Bethlehem, to the house of Jesse, because God has chosen a new king from amongst his sons. Right? A king whose heart will be after his own. God's heart. Right? And we immediately have Samuel's response in verse 2. Look back at that, right? Fear of Saul. That's how he responds. Fear of King Saul. And that's a fair response. It really is. Right? After all, Saul is king. And if he finds out that the, this prophet 
has anointed another king, murder, beheading, all right, sounds like a response for an ungodly king, right? I mean, if I was Saul, that's probably what I would do, right? right? Echoes of this world, echoes of this, uh, this world, what's happening right now with Samuel and Saul and Jesse and his sons, echoes of this would come again a millennium later, right? When another king who would be born in Bethlehem, the same town, and a king hears about this new king being born, decides to kill all the babies, right? Jesus, right? This story echoes the birth of Jesus. And that's a, another story for another time, but it's an important thing to remember. But right now, in this moment, with, with, with Samuel and Saul and, and Jesse and his sons, Samuel is straight up panicked about the current king. Right? He, he's scared, right? But God wants to remind him of the king of kings. So in verse 3, right, like we read, God instructs Samuel to take a heifer right, and to offer a sacrifice. Now, at this point, you might be tempted to think that God was using like tricks uh, to keep Samuel safe from Saul, right? But that's not true, right? God did not uh, hear about Samuel's fear and then offer a distraction of, all right? He didn't offer a distraction of just a cow, right? He didn't say, hey, you're scared, you're worried, you're concerned, you don't know what's going on. Maybe you should just sit down and have a cheeseburger. It'll make you feel better, right? That's not what God's doing. God would say that to, to me, right? But in reality, God is doing what he always does when we are scared. Look, this is what he's doing. When we are afraid, God points our eyes into the direction of himself, Right? When we are afraid, when we are scared, when we don't know what to do, God points our eyes in the direction of himself. Make a sacrifice. Worship me. Pray to me. Right? Samuel is focused on Saul, so God chooses to point his eyes in the direction of himself. You see, a heifer, a cow, was needed to offer a sacrifice for both consecration and anointing. Right, the law required a sacrifice for both. And God caused Samuel to hear his voice, to listen to his command, and to obey. Right? He was to lift his eyes away from, from Saul, from this fear, from this concern, from this world, and toward God, toward his Lord. He was to no longer mourn Saul and the situation because God had rejected him and had chosen now David, right? Samuel was to obey no matter how much he feared Saul. He was to fear the Lord, right? And biblical fear is respect and awe, right? He's to respect and fear the Lord more than Saul, right? right so follow uh, me, right? right? God says this, right? Listen, I know you don't know what is happening, right? Just follow me, that's what he's saying to, to Saul or to, to, to Samuel. I know you have genuine fears, but follow me, trust me. Go, go for me. Don't panic. Saying, look at me, take the next step. Keep your eyes on me, take the next step. Right? Notice he doesn't reveal, God doesn't reveal all the steps in the story that we were just looking at, right? He doesn't reveal all the steps. He just says, take this one step. Go to Jesse, right? 
Samuel is not told which son. He's told to go. Just go. Because one of the sons has been chosen. Just go. Right now, let's not forget. Right? Let's not forget that all this time, David right, is completely oblivious to what is happening. Right? He has no idea what's going down. He has no idea that God, the Lord Almighty, that God's hand is guiding events to anoint him king over Israel and place him in the lineage of our Lord Jesus. Right? He has no idea that these events are happening. All this time, David is just tending uh, sheep. All right? Maybe he's, he's strumming on his harp or something, leaning up against a, a giant rock, looking out over his sheep. Right? He's fighting the odd wild animal, uh, a lion, a bear, whatever, in between, right? Practicing with his slingshot. But for David, this was just like any other day. When this conversation between God and Samuel is going down, this is just another day for David. Another day as a shepherd, but things are really about to change. All right, look at verses 4 through 6 of the same chapter. It said, So Samuel did as the Lord instructed. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town came trembling to meet him. What's wrong, they asked. Do you come in peace? Yes, Samuel replied, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Purify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then Samuel performed the purification rite for Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice too. All right, read a little bit too much there. Right, no, I'm sorry, verse six. When they arrived, Samuel took one look at Elib, right, one of the sons, and thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. Now look back at verse 4, right? It begins with a very simple statement, right? Samuel did what God instructed. Right? He did what God said. That's what, it, that's what it says. That's how it starts. Simple but significant, right? right? Simple but significant. Samuel obeyed God. Samuel obeyed God. God. He set aside his fear of Saul. He set aside his grief over Saul and the people of Israel, and he obeyed the word of God to him. All right, we read that the, the elders of Bethlehem, the leaders of Bethlehem, came out to meet him, and they were troubled and afraid on account of his visit. Why? Why is that? Well, it, it might be that they have heard that all is not well between Saul and this, this prophet Samuel. And Samuel's presence in Bethlehem may mean trouble uh, with Saul for them. All right? So they naturally think and they naturally ask, do you come in peace? Right? It's like every great alien movie, right? Do you, do you come in peace? <laughs> is everything Okay. Right, Samuel relieves their fears and instructs them to cleanse themselves for the offering of the cow and invites Jesse and his sons to join them for the sacrifice. Now, this may sound a little weird or strange to us. Right? This was a pretty normal thing, though, for the prophet to be doing in their midst, in their, their city. Right? And then starts, after what we just read, 
then starts what can only be described as an ancient Israelite version of the show The Bachelor. All right? All right, first comes Elam, like it says in verse, verse 6, and Samuel immediately thinks, yes, here he is. All right, Tom Selleck Jr. All right, here he is. Samuel looks at this fine figure of a man. He's tall. He's obviously a leader, just like Saul. This has to be the guy. This is going to be the next king of Israel. Now, apparently, right, Samuel has not learned his lesson. Right? But God speaks into the heart of Samuel, and he says, no. Right? Don't consider the physical here, because I've rejected him. Now, why? Right? Well, the next time we, we, we come across Elib, we read about a man who is negative, read about a man who's always critical and who's condescending toward his younger brother, David. Right? Elib, while he, he looks the part, Having the, the right image does not mean having the right heart before God. Right? Then God speaks these amazing words. Right? Look, at, look at verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, look. As a, as a man, right, as a, hopefully, right, a strong man, right, this has not always been the verse that I have loved, right? My first inclination is not to be known as a man with just a good heart. I would much rather prefer to be known as, you know, like the next Arnold Schwarzenegger or something, right? As a, a protector or a provider, uh, uh, manly man, right? I'm man, hear me roar type of thing, right? But this verse, well, well it keeps coming up. This, this idea in, in this verse, it keeps coming up over and over again, right? Because in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, it says this, here's a warning about the heart of man, right? And, and then in Proverbs chapter 4, a book about wisdom, it says this, here's some advice about the heart of a man, 1 Samuel chapter 13, earlier in the story, it says, here is God's desire for the heart of a man. Matthew chapter 5 and Mark chapter 12, it says, here is Jesus' concern. A concern for the heart of man. And when, when things are repeated in Scripture, right, it is important to take note. All right? And so why this concern with a man's heart? Well, let's look at Mark chapter 7, verses twenty. Through 21, it says this, and then he added, right? It is what comes from inside that defiles you. For from within, out of a person's heart, comes evil thoughts. Right? Out of a man's heart comes his true nature and character, is what we're learning, right? <laughs> That's what we're talking about. That is, that is where manliness is. True biblical masculinity comes from. The source, right? It is a, it is a heart of a man that is, that is um, right, in tune with who God is. Right? If a heart of a man is, is turned away from God, as in the case of Saul, then out of evil will come out of his heart. Right? But, if, but if his heart is turned towards and after God, if, if he's forging his life on God, as in the case of, of David, then out of it will come blessing. 
Right now, I, I, wanna, I want everyone to listen very carefully to what I'm about to say here because this is, this is very important. Right? We've got to lean in and grab a hold of this and remember this. The choice that Samuel is making here is uh, about the election to the office, right? the position of king over Israel, right? the chosen people of God. It is not about the election to salvation, eternal life. Right? God's election to salvation is on basis of his grace and nothing more. Right? So no matter how good your heart, no matter how much we're pursuing God and loving him, Jesus' heart is better. And we know that, right? Jesus' heart is better. But here, God is calling someone to a position of authority in his kingdom, and that is based on their heart response. So when God calls people to work in his kingdom... He looks at their heart, right? They don't have to be the, the smartest, the, uh, the tallest, or look the best, though obviously, right? I'm looking pretty good. But listen, God looks at the heart to define biblical manhood, biblical womanhood, right? God looks at the heart because what is it, whatever it is forged on is what it's going to produce, right? It's how we fulfill what we're called to be. Biblical men and biblical women. So turn with me just for a quick moment to Psalms 57, 7. It says this, my heart is confident. This is David writing, right? Later on in his life. My heart is confident in you, O God. My heart is confident. No wonder I can sing you praises. Right, what, what do we read there, right? All right, David's heart was confident. Some of your translations I uh, may say that, that it's, it's fixed on, right? That, that his heart is, is fixed on God. If there was a foundry version of the Bible, we'd say it was forged on God, right? It was not fickle. It was not easily swayed, right? But it was fixed on God. His heart was fixed on God, right? This psalm was written while David was afraid for his life in a cave because Saul found out he was going to become king and started to kill him later on, right? It could have easily been a time when he was not confident in God and who he was created to be in the kingdom of God, but his heart said otherwise. I'm confident. And this is the verse that changed my mind. When people, people see me, I would love nothing more for them to say that he was a man with a good heart. Right? Because a good heart is a strong heart, a heart that protects. It's a heart that presides. It's a heart that provides. It's a, it's a heart that is rooted and forged upon who God is. It's a heart that is steadfast. It's immovable. It's a heart that is, is dependable and bountiful. It is all the things that a man should try to be. It is all the things a man would choose to be. A heart that leads in a godly way. Masculinity. Being a man of God, being a woman of God. Right? When God looked into the heart of Elib, that first brother, he didn't see those things. He rejected him to be king. Huh? But remember, like we said, Elib was still one of God's people. He was not rejected in, the, in that sense, but not chosen for the position of king. Right? The, the same comes to pass with, with the other sons of Jesse, with David's brothers, right? four sons. And each, each son passes before Samuel, and God tells him, no, this is not the one that I've chosen. 
right? If, if Samuel had gone on outward appearance, then he would have chosen the wrong man. Right? So, so learn a, a simple lesson here. Right? Look at this, right? When we choose, when we choose, when we decide if we're wrong, God will correct us. Look, right? When we choose if we are wrong, God will correct us. Here is a simple correction, right, that Samuel's receiving. It was an audible next, right? Right? Swipe, swipe, is it right or left? On those dating apps, right? Swipe. It was an audible next heard by Samuel, right? Sometimes God corrects us uh, by allowing us to fail, it's a way that he corrects us, right? Sometimes he, he corrects us by not letting us get the job. Sometimes God corrects us by sending us to a different posting than the one we wanted. Sometimes God corrects us by sending us a physical person to tell us, right? right? When we step up to the table in community, we should look in a different direction, we're told, right? No matter what it is, however God corrects us, God will always allow us to choose. That's free will, principle of the Bible, right? And if the choice is wrong, he will point us in the right direction. He will correct our path some way, somehow. Right? Samuel was corrected over and over again until finally David enters the picture. All right? Verse 11. Read it with me. All right? Verse 11 of chapter 16. Then Samuel asked, dude, are all these your sons? Are these all the sons you have? Well, they're still the youngest, Jesse replied, but he's out in the fields watching the sheep and the goats. Send for him at once, Samuel said. We will not sit down to eat until he arrives. So Jesse sent for him. He was dark and handsome with beautiful eyes, right? In the verse 13, and the Lord said, this is the one, anoint him. So as David stood there among his brothers, Samuel took the flask of olive oil he had and brought that he had brought and anointed David with the oil. And the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. Then Samuel returned to Ramah, his home. All right, Samuel asked a simple question in verse 11. All right, are these all of your sons? Is this all you have? Is this, is this, the, is this it? Right? Now my, my mom used to sometimes call me my brother's name. Or even though my brother's like, I don't know, 12, 13 years older than I am, right? And she would still call me, Michael! Or, hey, Michael! Like, all the time, right? right? But she never flat out forgot me. Right? She called me the wrong name sometimes, but she never flat out forgot me. It seems like here that Jesse, this father, totally forgot about bringing David in to meet Samuel and just left him in the field. Right? He, was, he was so unimportant that he was not even invited to the sacrifice and to this, this meal, to this dinner. Right? When, when Jesse uh, does remember right, about David, he, he calls David his youngest son. Right? And commentators tell us that the word youngest that's used here can also be translated as least and smallest least and smallest. In fact, the task of looking after the sheep and the goats was usually the servant's task, right? And so David was given the lowest job within the family. David was forgotten. He was the forgotten son of Jesse. But look, right, when man forgets, God always remembers. 
right? When we forget, God always remembers. Seriously, right? At this point, David is not even mentioned by name. His father calls him the youngest, right? In his father's eyes, he's not that important. In, his eye, in the eyes of the elders of Bethlehem, he cannot be that important. He has been forgotten. Right, David, this, this boy, has been forgotten by his father, by his brothers, by the, the elders in the room, everyone. Right? They, like us, measure a man's worth by what he has and what he does. Right? They, like us, are all caught up in a man's wealth and accomplishments and possessions. And while David, he, yes, he is the youngest, he owns nothing, and he has accomplished zilch, nothing, right? Right, but God did not forget him and this little nobody right, who's about to become a somebody. Right, God didn't forget this little nobody who was about to become a somebody, a king. Right, David is sent for and he enters into the picture and he is described as being dark and handsome. Right, again, see, I told you, it's like watching an episode of The Bachelor. Right, and it says he has beautiful eyes. And I think that's kind of ironic. I really do, because Samuel was going by what his eyes saw, and the one that God chose had beautiful eyes. But the thing was, is that he was chosen because of his heart. Right? God tells Samuel to rise up, to rise up and anoint him. He is the one. Right? He, he was not Samuel's choice. Right? He was not the elder's choice, I'm sure. He's not his brother's choice. He was not the, the father's choice, but he was God's choice. Right? He was God's choice because God knew his heart. He knew what his heart was forged on. It was a heart after God's own heart. Right? David was not perfect. Right? He, his heart was not perfect, but his heart was after God. That was his desire. Right? All that made all the difference when it came to God choosing who would be the king over Israel. Right? In verse 13, we read of the anointing of God's official choice. Right? Right? David was a shepherd, but there were a lot of shepherds, right? So that wasn't what made him special. David was good looking, but there was a lot of, of strong, good looking men <laughs> around, right? That's not what made him special. David was young, but there was plenty of young men that God could have chosen. God described what made David special back in 1 Samuel 13, verse 14, where it says this, but now your kingdom must end, right? Talking about Saul, for the Lord has sought out a man, even though this is a boy, right? In our eyes, a man, because his heart was right, a man after his own heart, the Lord has already appointed him to be the leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. David did not just have a good heart or a confident heart. He was after God's own heart. He was a man after God's own heart. Only God will satisfy a heart like David's. Only God and not being king, right? Not being the best son, not even being anything more than a shepherd. Only God can satisfy a heart like David's. And that is where the story ends, 
right? David is anointed and Samuel kicks it back home. That's it. That's the story, right? Samuel did not begin a a let's enthrone David political party. He did not begin to undermine Saul's throne looking for a way to establish David as king. Samuel took one look at David and reacted exactly the way God wanted him to. Lord, I don't know why you chose this little kid. I don't know why, but you'll have to put him on the throne. You're going to have to do it. It's a God-sized thing, so you're going to have to do it. I can't do it. Listen, David will become one of the greatest men of the Bible, mentioned more than a thousand times in the pages of Scripture, more than Abraham, right, the, the, the original receiver of the covenant of God, right, more than, than Father Abraham, more than, than Moses, the, the leader that brought the Israelites out of slavery, more than any mere man in the New Testament. Right? It is no accident that Jesus was known uh, as the, wasn't, wasn't known as the son of Abraham or the, the follower of, of Moses' commandments. He was known as the son of David. And that's not by accident. Right? David has a life-altering moment. He is anointed by Samuel. Everything should change, right? Everything should be different. His lens at which he looks at the world should be completely different. But instead, David goes back out into the field. Why? Well, because look, when God calls you, he trains you. When God calls you, he trains you. Just like we read at the very beginning of of the service and and talked about in communion, he's with us. He's training us, right? Going back out to the field was not a season of waiting or wandering away. It was a season of work and training, right? David was a great man, right? David was a, a great king over Israel because he never lost his shepherd's heart. He never lost his shepherd's heart. Being a shepherd takes special care. Right? A special kind of patience. It means you know the needs of your sheep. Right? And it means that you smell like your sheep because you're so close with them. And it means you learn to trust in God while you are alone. Right? David, he had lions and bears and wolves to contend with, and the sheep had to be protected. Right? Listen to what it says in, in Psalm 78, verses 70 through 72. Right? It says this. He chose his servant, he, God, chose his servant David, calling him from the sheep pens. He took David from tending the ewes, maybe baby sheep, I'm not sure, and lambs, and made him the shepherd of Jacob's descendants, God's own people, Israel. Took him from the sheep pen to the throne. The time in the fields were preparation for being king, right? Hard work, right? Because when God calls you, he will train you. Maybe not in the way you're thinking, but he will. Right? I don't know. I just don't know where you are in your life right now, right? Maybe you're, you're still scared and you need to refocus your eyes on God. Take that step today, right? Maybe you don't even know who God is. You haven't made him the Lord of your life. 
Forge your life on him. Do that today. Take that step. Right? Maybe you feel like everyone has forgotten you but God. And you need to remember. That's all that matters. As it says in Scripture, you live for an audience of one. Him. Or maybe you're out in the field and you're in training. And you're working and you're striving for a goal. Wherever you are, all we have to remember is this. God is seeking. We gotta remember that no matter what we're doing, no matter what step we're on, no matter where we are in forging our life on God or continuing to forge our life on God, we have to remember that God is seeking. Right? First Samuel 13, 14 said that God sought after, right? looked for, <laughs> searched for a man after his own heart, and he is still seeking, searching, sotting after. Right? People after his heart. People willing to forge their entire life on him. People who know the true definition of what a man is and what a woman is in God's kingdom. People with the right heart. Right, right? After this moment, he's he's looking for hearts that are are turned. Right now, he's looking for hearts that are turned towards and after him. God is, right? Hearts that desire a relationship with him. Hearts who, whose desire is to be in his holy presence and to know his Holy Spirit and to take ground for his kingdom in this outpost, this world that he has us in. Right? Second Chronicles 16 verse 9 says this, the eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those hearts Who are fully committed to him. We don't have to be perfect because he's the strength. Right? He's the strength. He's the power. Right? That is what God wants, a heart that is completely his. Right? We don't need to be famous or prominent or to be people that look for those things. It's okay to be those things, but it's more important to be people after God's own heart. Right? We don't need to be respected or even liked by others, but to be people who are after God's own heart. Right? We don't need status, influence, or power, uh, the respect or the approval of men, or great responsibilities, but we need to be people after God's own heart. Heck, you don't even need to be a minister to be after God's own heart. Right? You don't have to be perfect, because you can't be. You don't have to know every verse in the Bible, though reading the Bible is beneficial and helps. You don't have to have all the answers. You just got to be a person, a man, and a woman after God's own heart, right? Look, right, being a person after God's own heart is to be a person that's seeking after God himself. Who's putting hammer to anvil, forging, day in and day out, working, day in and day out, to be a person that's seeking after God himself. A person who's just forging ahead taking steps, pounding that anvil, right? You learn that all you can about him so you can fight for what he fights for, right? You forge your life so much on him and learn so much about him and his heart and what he cares about so you can fight for what he fights for. You can care about what he cares about. You can obey and seek after his will that he has for you and for your family and for the community that he has placed you in. 
You repent when you don't do those things and you turn back to him. That's what it means. You point your eyes in the direction of God when you are afraid. You listen when he calls. Forging your life on him. Having the heart, seeking a heart like his. I'm going to invite the, the worship leaders to come back up here. And uh, we're going to worship here in a minute and continue to worship this king. But listen to this quote by Charles Swindoll, a great preacher. He explains this whole thing this way. He says, what does it mean to be a person after God's own heart? Well, he says, it seems to me it means that you are a person whose life is in harmony with the Lord. Harmony with the Lord. Right? What is important to him is important to you. What burdens him burdens you. When he says go to the right, you go to the right. When he says stop that in your life, you stop it. When he says this is wrong and I want you to change, you come to terms with it because you have a heart for God. Because you're forging your life on him. Right? A person after God's own heart, even if they are a nobody like David can be used to change the world. Right, this, this morning you are not a nobody to God, but a somebody. And he knows your heart. Right, he, he sees you trying to seek after his heart. And if you're genuinely doing it, even if you're stuck on some distant field in the hillside, away and forgotten, he sees you. He sees you in your fear. He sees you in the field. He sees you in your humility. He sees you in your obedience. He sees you with your integrity. When no one else is looking, right, he is calling you this morning and each and every morning to himself. Listen, the response is ours to make. You just got to accept it. You just got to do it. You got to take that step. Right, remember in 1809, Napoleon marching through Austria while all those little babies are being born around the world, unnoticed by the world. Who made the biggest impression? Right, in 1020 BC, Saul was on the throne, kicking it as king, and a little boy was tending sheep on a hillside outside of Bethlehem. Who noticed? God did. Right, and he took a nobody and made him a king. We have the same opportunity. Let's stand and worship the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, this morning.